Welcome to Great Jewish Personalities. Tonight we're going to be discussing the great Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And we actually made an appearance last week because he was one of the 80 students of Hillel. And the Talmud told us last week that he was the most minor of the 80 students of Hillel. Yet it gives a description of total scholarly prowess that's almost unimaginable. So the Talmud tells us that this is how they describe the acumen of scholarship of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He did not leave uh, unstudied, not scripture, not Mishnah, not Talmud, not Halacha, not Agadita, so the philosophical and theological aspects of Torah. The extra letters of Torah, every time a word is spelled with an extra letter, he was able to know the reason why, because we know Hebrew words are sometimes spelled with extra letters. He was an expert in even the most minor of rabbinic customs and edicts and traditions. He was an expert in afortiari argumentation, kalvachomers. He was an expert in analogies uh, of zereshava, which means a case where you have two biblical laws that contain a common word. He was proficient in the astronomy patterns of the sun and the moon, of course, uh, when the temple was extant and the Sanhedrin was in session, that was very important because if you didn't, you weren't an expert in astronomy, you wouldn't know how to organize the calendar in a way that we maintain a system of balance between a solar year and a lunar month. Additionally, he was proficient in numerical values of Torah words, every Torah word has, every Hebrew word really, has a numerical value, and that contains hidden meanings. He knew the hidden meanings of all of them. He was an expert in the conversations of heavenly angels. He knew, he was able to converse with angels, and he knew everything there is to know about conversations of angels, conversations of demons, conversations of trees, he was an expert in various analogies and metaphors. And lastly, says the Talmud, on large matters and small matters, he was a total expert. And what's that? The large matters is Maise Merkava, the most uh, theological and esoteric theological teachings of the Torah. And the small matters is every single law in the Torah. That's how the Talmud describes his uh, the scope of his scholarship, which gives you, which basically means he knew everything there was to know about everything. But he was also a man of remarkable greatness, personal character and greatness. So the Talmud, uh, the Talmud testifies on Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai as follows. This is also from the Talmud in Sukkah. Throughout the entirety of his life, he never had any idle chit chat. Whenever he talked to someone, it was either a mitzvah or was Torah study. That's it. Never had any idle chicha. None of that. Number one. He never walked four cubits without wearing tefillin and without studying Torah. He was totally engaged in Torah study. You ask the question, how is it possible for someone to have such proficiency and prowess in all these areas of Torah? Well, if you never stop studying Torah, that's a good way to start. He was never not the first person in the house of study. So in the morning, everyone would come to the yeshiva, to the mesifta, to study. Who was always the first person there, first man in, last man out, was always Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. 
He never slept in the house of scholarship. Whenever he was in the house of scholarship, he was always studying. In fact, the Talmud also testifies that they never saw him wasting time or not totally engaged in study. Additionally, he would never study Torah in an unclean location. He was able to appreciate that Torah is the teachings of God. If it's the teachings of God, if you're not in an entirely pure state of mind and in an entirely pure location, how could you study? That's a little bit of a defilement of this, uh, the sacred. Furthermore, he never said a teaching that he did not teach, did not study from his rabbi, from his teacher. And he never left the house of scholarship early, with the exception of two days. Day number one is the eve of Passover, because there's a mitzvah uh, when the temple is extant to bring the sacrifice of of the Pesach, the Passover sacrifice, and therefore that was the one day, one of two days that he left early. And the second day that he left early was the day before Yom Kippur, because that's a day where there's a mitzvah to eat uh, meals, and therefore he would leave a little bit early. Give a little bit of an insight into the regimen of Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai and how he became such a great Torah scholar. And just a quick way to remember, was always the first to the house of scholarship, always the last to leave, never had any idle chitchat, always studying Torah, and never walked four amos without wearing tefillin, which means being a state of readiness for spirituality, and without Torah. Now, uh, we'll get to the year. So he rises, to, he lives a very long life. He was a student of, of Hillel, which means Hillel is going back to the, to, to the uh, century before the Common Era, but he lived all the way through the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70. He was the leader of the Jewish people, already a very old, venerated sage, by the year 70 when the Temple was destroyed. And this is really the backdrop uh, for uh, his unique role in Jewish history. Uh, there was a very vulnerable and critical time period for the Jewish people leading up to the destruction of the Second Temple uh, that the state of the Jews was very volatile. Um, just to give a little bit of, of a backstory of what was going on amongst the people at that time, the one element that the Talmud says, and we know historically is true, that really, uh, that really symbolized this time period was factionalism. There was so many, all the Jews were broken down into various groups and factions that were very antagonistic to each other. Not only uh, religiously, so we know Josephus is famous for telling us that there was the Pharisees, which well, we would just call Jews, because um, they were the standard of the mainstream Jews. Uh, and there were the Sadducees, the Tzidokim, the Jews that rejected the tenets of the Oral Torah. And there were these the, uh, the Essenes, a third or third major group, which uh, were... Uh, emblematic of a, a theme of that time where people would take Judaism and kind of change it in a little bit, fork it in a little way and make their own brand of Judaism. By the way, early Christianity began as one of these splinter sects that, that, that uh, went off from the Jewish people. So there's religious factions, but there's also political factions. We have Rome in control of Judea, of Israel. And there's a large segment of the population known as the Friends of Rome that were very, very warm and friendly and wanted to be totally submitted to Rome rule, to Roman rule, but also to Roman culture. 
They want the total acculturation that the Jewish people should become Romans first, Roman citizens first, Rome, Romans in thought and ideology, and yeah, we're Jews as well, but that's not really what defines us. And then you had the Zealots. The Zealots, they were nationalists who were totally disturbed by the notion that these pagans are coming to Israel and they're infiltrating and defiling our land. Let's get rid of them. Let's make war. Let's destroy them. And that was broken down to various subgroups. We have groups called the Biryonim, very aggressive, uh, aggressive uh, militants. We have the Sikari, which the, the Sikari is a word that describes a group, but they were called the Sikari because the Sikari is a kind of dagger that they would use to assassinate their opponents. Really unimaginable the kind of behavior of some of the Jews of those uh, of that time. So there's so many different groups uh, vying for leadership of the people, but also causing a lot of internal strife coupled with the external forces of the Romans. And we know a pattern throughout Jewish history that it's we're much more in danger when we fight internally than when we're united internally and we have an external threat. And this particular point in history, we have both an existential external threat in the form of the Romans, but also an existential internal threat in uh, uh, because of the various <laughs> different groups and factions and different ideas that are becoming popular at this time. Now, a couple of years before the temple was destroyed, there was the first Jewish-Roman war known as the Great Revolt. The Roman procurator of Judea at the time was a fellow by the name of Florus, and he was a really, really terrible person uh, who made it his duty to provoke the Jews and to try to cause an eruption so that the Romans would come and decimate the people. So he began, for example, by revoking citizenship from many groups of Jews. And then once the people were not being protected officially by Rome, they're not citizens, they were attacked by riots and there was slaughter of Jews and destruction of, uh, of synagogues. And that uh, kind of really raised the tensions between Florus, the Roman representative of leadership in Judea and the local population, uh, and it went even as far as the Jews would mock him. And one time, a particular group of Jews mocked him, and he ordered the Roman legions to just slaughter, and they killed thousands of people in a single day. But either way, those conditions sparked a Jewish armed resistance, known as the Great Revolt, or the First Jewish-Roman War. And the Jews were initially very successful. Uh, and they managed to drive the Romans out of Jerusalem, and the world was in a frenzy. The Roman was, Rome was at its peak of its powers. And a ragtag group of Jews somehow managed to, to get rid of them and to kick them out of Jerusalem and to reestablish a certain degree of hegemony and sovereignty over, over Jerusalem, which is unheard of at the time. But unfortunately, it didn't last very long. Rome flexed her formidable muscles. And under the leadership of one of the great generals, of the time, Vespasian, uh, they began to systematically and brutally thwart the rebellion. And their, his strategy was to leave Jerusalem, the, the hotbed or the epicenter of the revolt, leave that for the last, and to go systematically from town to town, beginning with the coast and the northern parts of Israel, 
and to just go town after town, lay siege, no one could come in, no one come out, starve them until they either submit or they just die of starvation, one town after another town, and slowly uh, encroaching upon Judea. The towns that submitted were spared, the ones that were not, that, that showed any sort of resistance, were brutally uh, killed in horrible, horrible numbers and, and, and ways and methods. The great historian Josephus, he was one of the Jewish leaders in the Galilee, but when he, uh, when the Romans attacked his town, they submitted, and he actually joined the Romans and was chronicling this war as a kind of a Jewish Roman. He was a Sadducee, so he was kind of not so disappointed with the Romans as is, and he eventually wrote major, major books um, from that time period chronicling all those events. Eventually, the resistance coalesced in Jerusalem, and the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is designed to withstand sieges. Remember, we had Herod last week who built all the great fortifications and walls and, and fortresses in Jerusalem that made it, uh, you know, very formidable to withstand, to withstand a, a protracted siege. But unfortunately, inside of the walls of Jerusalem, there was actually a civil war happening amongst the various different groups. And because each group had its people, they had its uh, ideology, and they had their objectives, and they viewed the other Jews as being threats. So you have the Romans encircling the city, and they're a, a mortal threat. And then in the city, the Jews are killing each other. There's, unfortunately, it's really sad to say, but at this point, this time in history, we have, you know, thievery and murder, of course, but assassinations and different alliances with different groups and also, uh, tragically, uh, cannibalizing each other's provisions. So Jerusalem, like we said, had, uh, really all the conditions in place to withstand a very long siege. They had, of course, uh, a, the natural defenses, because Jerusalem is on a mountain, number one, but also they had a lot of wealthy Jews there that had stockpiled provisions that could have lasted uh, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands even, for many decades. The Talmud tells us that there were storage houses of grain and of wood and provisions that would last 21 years. Additionally, Jerusalem had a lot of natural water supply. They could have lasted. But because there was some groups of Jews in the city that wanted to force a fight, they wanted to fight the, you know, they were the zealots, they wanted to fight the Romans, they went and burned down the storage houses of wood and wheat and food and provisions, and there was mass starvation in the city. So the Romans are encircling the city, and there's no food in town, and people are literally dying of starvation in the streets. And those who were brave or desperate enough to forage outside the city to go find food, well, what were the, the Romans would catch them and they would crucify them. And at that time, the Romans are crucifying between 300 to 500 Jews every single day. And think about how demoralizing that is. Jerusalem, the outskirts of Jerusalem, denuded of its trees. All the trees are being used uh, for the battle and to make these makeshift crucifixions and just terrible, terrible disaster. And Rabbi Yochum Zakai, he's a very moderate 
because the Jews know that what really makes us a powerful nation is not sovereignty. We could flourish under whatever conditions, uh, whatever conditions the uh, the oppressor or the oppressive uh, regime has upon us, so long as we're able to study Torah. But if there's slaughter and people, Jews are dying, it's not worth it. It's not worth to have sovereignty if it's going to mean tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Jews are going to die. So he was in favor of, of ceding to the Romans so long as they were, would allow the Jewish people as a nation to continue. Problem is, is that his voice and the voice of what was generally the accepted, the mainstream, that was drowned out by all the other competing voices and aggressive and violent voices that were in control of the city. So he made a one of the gambits, one of the greatest gambits of all time at this point in history. This is in the year 69. The siege has been going on for a couple of years already. People are literally dying of starvation in the city. The el- very old sage, Rabbi Yochum Zakai, makes a decision to do something Dramatic and radical. Problem was that the Jewish people, you couldn't even leave the city because the various zealots were controlling the gates in and out of the city. You couldn't even go negotiate with the Romans because they, don't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't allow that. Either, we're either fighting, we're not negotiating with them at all. So he sent out a rumor that he was dying. He's very old after all. Would it be a surprise, especially under those conditions? And they sent out a false rumor that he was dead. And all his students are bewailing him. And they put him in a coffin to go take him outside of the city to bury. The Romans would allow the Jews to bury their dead outside the city. That They would allow. People would go and bury the dead outside the city. So the procession, the funeral procession, or Yochum and Zakkai is leaving the city. And he's really alive inside the box. And... The guards at the door of the gates, they say, well, how do we know he's really alive? Let's try to stab him just to make sure. They say, you're going to start puncturing the, the, ho- the holes in the body of the tzaddik, and they allowed him to go. Once he's outside the city, he goes to the Roman lines and has a very dramatic encounter with Vespasian. This is one of the uh, momentous events of, of Jewish history, really, and certainly of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai's life. So the Talmud in Gittin, page 56, describes it as follows. He goes and he meets the general, and he tells him as follows. Peace be unto you, O king. Peace be unto you, O king. So he labels him a king. So Vespasian is not impressed yet. He'll be impressed in a short little bit. And he tells him, you need to be executed for two reasons. First of all, I'm a general. The king, the emperor, is in Rome. And it's a capital offense to call someone who's not the emperor with the title and the honorific of king or emperor. First reason why you should get executed. Second reason is because, well, if, if you're so impressed with me, you're calling me a king, then you should have come earlier. Why didn't you come earlier? That's his, his two questions. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai responds, he says, first of all, if you're not a king now, you will be a king in your lifetime. How does Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai know that he'll be a king in his lifetime? So he quotes the verse. And the verse tells us that Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. And he takes two additional verses to explain what this means. Lebanon, he brings a second verse, tells us, is a reference to Jerusalem. 
and mighty is a reference to a king. Thus, with these three verses, says Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, I know for sure Jerusalem's gonna fall. It's gonna fall thanks to you. And the verse indicates that Jerusalem will only fall in the hands of a king. Therefore, you're a king. You're not a king now, you'll be a king later. Why did I come to you earlier? Because I wasn't able to do it. He's not impressed. But as they're having the conversation, a, uh, a uh, message comes from Rome. The Roman emperor died and the Senate elected you, Vespasian, to become the new emperor. Obviously, now he's impressed. <laughs> and so he says, I'm not going to execute you. Obviously, this, there's something there, right? In, in the middle of their conversation, pretty remarkable. I'm not going to execute you. Uh, but the Talmud describes what happened. Very interesting here. He uh, was in the middle of pulling on his shoes and wasn't able to get his, his foot was, sw- was swollen and he wasn't able to get his, his second foot into his shoe. And he wasn't able to pull out his first foot from his shoe. Very strange. So he's like, what's going on? How come I can't put my shoes on? I just, they just told me I'd be keen. How come I can't put my shoes on? So Rabbi Yochum so tells him, well, there's another verse, the fourth verse. And the verse says that good news uh, swells limbs. The limbs get swollen. And therefore, you found that you're going to be emperor. It's really good news. And your feet just grew. So your foot that had the shoe on it, you can't pull it out. And the next foot, well, the shoe's too small. What do we do? Bring someone that you really dislike. It'll dampen, it'll temper your enthusiasm. And once again, your feet will return to normal size, but they put your shoes on. So they bring in a hardened criminal, and right away his feet shrink to normal size. He's able to do whatever he wants with his shoes. And now he's really impressed with Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai. And he tells him, I'm impressed with you. And in Roman custom, when you're, when someone does really something nice for you, you offer them something in return. He says, I want to make you an offer. Ask anything from me. I'm the emperor. I have the ability to give you, grant you with whatever request you want. And Rabbi Yochanan made a decision that was debated many, many, for many, many centuries after he made this decision. He decided to not ask that Jerusalem be spared. Instead, he asked three separate requests. Number one, he says, he asked, Spare Yavna, which is the city of scholars and its wise people. Spare the family of Rabbi Gamaliel, who's the family of the Nasi, the descendants of Hillel. And send me a doctor to heal the old sage Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi, Rabbi Tzadok was an old sage who fasted for 40 years because he knew the impending destruction. And he, in order to try to atone for the people, he was fasting. But he was very sick. Send a doctor to heal him. He granted those requests. He went off to Rome. His son Titus took over the siege. And the rest is history. On Tishabav, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and led many tens of thousands of Jews as slaves back to Rome. And disaster really came to fruition. So that's the, that's the story of the Rocham and Zakkai. Now, many decades later, the students were debating, did he make a fatal flaw? Did he make a crucial blunder? Could he have gotten Jerusalem to be spared? It's a big, dis- big discussion. But it seems like history has vindicated him of a brilliant maneuver here. Because, yes, indeed, Jerusalem was destroyed. But he had the foresight, he had the vision to arrange, to think about what's going to be the day after. The day after destruction, that is 
where the, you know, the danger is at its highest because now you're scrambling to see where are things going to settle? What's going to be for the future? And Rabbi Yochanan Mazakai already was, he, he, he already understood that Jerusalem is done. He knew that. He even told, he even told Vespasian, Jerusalem is going to fall in the hands of a king. You're a king. It must be. He obviously knew Jerusalem was going to fall. And by the way, Titus, who actually finished the job, he also became emperor after the death of Vespasian. So both of them were kings. But Jerusalem was done. What's going to be for the future? And he recognized all these factions, they're all going to melt away. They're not going to last. What's going to last is a core of Torah scholars in Yavne that are going to put the Jewish people back on their feet. And this vision, this decision, this gambit indeed paved the path for Judaism to flourish even in the absence of a temple and even in the wake of such devastation. I want to point out from this story also a little bit of his character. He meets Vespasian. And what does he see? He sees a general. If you were to look at his uniform, how many stars would it have? It would look like a general. That's what his eyes show him. But what does he actually see? He sees a king. We all have these dual competing realities. We have our physical reality and our spiritual reality. And our eyes, well, they give us messages. What are the messages that they give us? They give us physical messages. What do you see? What is, what's the light that's reflecting from what you're encountering in your field of vision? That's what he saw. And he saw a general with his eyes. But how did he perceive the person that he encountered? Based upon a verse that says, Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. And two other verses that explain what does Lebanon mean and what does mighty mean. The temple will be destroyed in the hands of a king. And he knew that the temple was about to be destroyed in the hands of this person. So he actually saw a king. Because Rabbi Yochanan Zaka, his spiritual reality, that was more real to him than his physical reality. Indeed, his physical eyeballs gave him messages. And that was a message of a general. But his spiritual eyeballs, well, what did they show him? They showed him a king. And how did he address him? The way he saw him. What was his reality? His reality was his spiritual reality. To him, the verse that says, Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty, that's more real than what his eyes show him. His his eyes eyes can play tricks on you. They don't necessarily show you what's real. It can give you distortion. Now, what happened in the aftermath of the temple being destroyed? This is really, um, you know, he's the leader of the people, and he invests his time and energy into rebuilding the nation. Yavne became the successor to the Sanhedrin. It became the epicenter of Jewish religious and political life. And we're told in the Talmud that Rabbi Yochanan Zaka made a series of edicts in Yavne right after the temple was destroyed. So for example, when the temple was extant, when on the holiday of, of Sukkot, you check the lulav, the entire world for one day, but in the temple, for all seven days. Once the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan Metzaka, his, his goal, his objective, his aim, is to recreate, so to speak, Judaism in, under these new conditions. And therefore, he, he dec- decreed that in the entire world, they would 
shake a for all seven days. So nowadays, on our holiday of Sukkot, we shake a even though we're in Houston or wherever we may be, for seven days, that's thanks to Rabbi Yochum Tzankai's edict. One example, he gave in other examples as well. Uh, for example, he would, uh, the law was that you blow the shofar on the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. What about, what happens if it's Shabbos? So in the temple, they would blow it even on Shabbos. Elsewhere, they wouldn't. Why? Because there's a fear maybe you may carry it from one domain to another domain. Says Rabbi Yochum Zakai that in, that post the temple being destroyed, everywhere that has a court, that's going to take on the status, so to speak, of Jerusalem, and therefore you will be able to uh, blow the shofar even on Shabbos. And this, I think, there's a whole list of them. I just wanted to select these two because this really demonstrates his idea or his, uh, his philosophy. He recognized that the temple being destroyed, it's going to be replaced, so to speak, with the court, with the Torah, with the Torah leadership. There was corrupt political leadership. There was various different sectarianistic splinter groups. There's factionalism. All that's going to go away. What's going to be, what's going to be the preservation? What's going to be the continuity of the people? What's going to be our perpetuation? It's going to be the court. And thus, the court, so to speak, that takes on the status of, of the temple. So in the temple, you blew a shofar on Shabbos. Well, if there's a court there, you would do that as well. In Yavne, all the rabbis came together and they established the famous, what's known as the Masifta, which is, like I said, it's a successor of uh, of the Sanhedrin. Now, it's really interesting some of the other decisions that he made over there at the time. Rabbi Yochumad Zakrai was the oldest and most accomplished sage of his era. But he wasn't the Nasi. You remember, the Nasi was uh, an office that Hillel and Hillel's descendants had, and that was the official recognized leader of the people. At the time, the Nasi was Rabban Gamliel. Now, it's a little confusing because there's multiple of Gamliels and multiple of Shimon Gamliels. Hillel's son was Shimon, his son was Gamliel, his son was Shimon, his son was Gamliel that we're talking about. A little confusing. But this Rabban Gamliel II, also known as Rabban Gamliel, of Yavne, he was very young at the time, and he takes a very strong role in leadership in Yavne after the temple is destroyed. And Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai recognized that if he stayed in Yavne, he would overshadow the young Nasi, Rabbi Gamliel, who is the official leader of the people and the head of the Sanhedrin, and therefore he decided arbitrarily to leave and to cede control of the rabbis in Yavne to the comparatively younger Rabban Gamliel, even though he was an outstanding sage, as we've seen, and he lived 120 years, and at this time he's already 112 by uh, by most accounts, he uh, emulated the humility of Hillel that we learned about last week. His motto, he had a motto, if you studied a lot of Torah, do not ascribe it to your merit, because this is why you were created. Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai was the greatest Torah scholar of his time. He towered above all his peers, but he had not an iota or a smidgen of pride, because he viewed that the same way we view the fact that we digest. It's something that we do, 
because that's the way we're designed. Humans are designed to strive for Torah greatness. He did that. He did that without any, uh, you know, without any compromises. Like we saw, he never stopped studying Torah. But he didn't feel at all that he deserves any accolades or honorifics as a result. He didn't want people to laud him because that's why I was created. Why should I behave any differently? I'm just doing what I'm programmed or I'm engineered or I'm uh, tasked with doing. So he left Yavna and he would only come back uh, periodically. Uh, he's already uh, advanced in age, in years. The Talmud tells of a momentous episode that happened on his deathbed. This is the Talmud in Brachos. When he, when Yochanan Zakkai was sick, his students came to visit him. When they saw him, they started crying. What'd they say? The candle of Israel, the right pillar, the strong hammer. Uh, why are you crying? They see Yochanan Zakkai crying, and they're saying, well, why would you have a reason to cry? You're the leader of the people. Why are you sad? So he tells them like this. Suppose I was going to meet a king of flesh and blood. A king of flesh and blood has a lot of power, but he's here today and tomorrow he's in the grave. If he gets mad at me, his madness is not going to last forever. If he punishes me, that too is not going to last forever. And if he kills me, well, that's only death in this world, not death in Alamabah forever, not eternal death. What's more, if there is a physical human king who is uh, going to judge me, I could cajole him, I could bribe him, I could find a way to try to intercede upon my own behalf. Yet, and I could bribe him as well, still, if someone was facing trial in front of a human king, they'd be shaking, they'd be quaking in their boots, Right? Because who knows what's going to be, what's going to be with me. Despite the fact that a human king is comparatively very weak, doesn't have any real lasting power. Now that I'm going to meet God, who is in existence forever, who gets, if he gets mad at me, it's going to last forever. If he kills me, it's going to last forever. I can't possibly try to cajole or bribe him. What's more, I know that who knows where my path leads. Is it going to lead to Alam Abba? Is it going to lead to Gehenim? I don't know. I shouldn't cry. And I think this really, once again, reinforces really our perspective of who, of what Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai represented. He viewed death as an encounter with the king. It's real. And it's as real, even more real than how you should behave if you're meeting a real king or what we would call a real king, a human king. In, you know, if we were facing a human king, then we would be steered because we view that as being real. Our physical reality trumps our spiritual reality. In his world, it was the opposite. Thus, he was much more terrified of meeting God than he would be of meeting any human king. And then he tells his students like this. The students say to him, give us a blessing. He gives him a very strangely worded blessing. What's his blessing? May it be the will of God that the fear of heaven should be for you, for my students, for the students of Yerachim Razakai, as the fear of man. You should be as steered of God as you're steered of, as you're steered of man. 
the students are a little bit perplexed by this blessing. We should be scared of God much more than we're scared of humans. Says Zakai, my greatest wish is that you should be as fearful of God as you are of humans. Why? Because when someone's about to sin, what do they do? They look right, they look left, make sure no one's watching, and they could sin. Well, what about the fact that God's watching? That's not as real. And I think in, line, in light of, of how we understand Rabbi Yochanan Zakai's character, persona in general, he viewed God and the spiritual reality as being more real than the physical reality. When he sees the space and he sees a king, when he's about to encounter a, uh, a, a human king, he's not as worried as he is if he's going to encounter God. That's more real to him. To his students, he says, I, at least I want parody. You should be as fearful of God as you are fearful of man. He's recognizing that the next generation is not quite holding by the same levels of faith that he and his colleagues were, but he says, at least you should strive to have parity with your your two dual realities. Let your reality, your spiritual reality, your fear of God be equal at least and no less than your fear of men. Of men, He had thousands of students, but the Talmud points out that there were five students that were particularly outstanding. And in fact, the Mishnah in the chapters of our fathers what tells us the five students, and also the names that uh, that he gave them, or the, the titles. He would uh, enumerate their qualities. What were the qualities? first one was Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer, he said, Rabbi Eliezer is like a, a pit that whatever you drop in, it's totally sealed. He doesn't lose a drop. Whatever Torah you drop in him, he'll, he'll remember it forever. Rabbi Yoshua, what's his compliment? Praiseworthy is he who gave birth to him. Rabbi Yossi, he's pious. Rabbi Shimon, he's fearful of sin. And Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, he is like an overwhelming spring. And he told them, and he would say like this, he would say, if you had all the scholars of Israel on one side of a scale, and you put my student Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer on the other side, he would outweigh them. This is the students of Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai. And then the, the Mishnah goes on to say, no, the truth is that if you had all the scholars of Israel and Rabbi Eliezer, but you put the last student, Rabbi Eliezer ben Aruch, on the other side, he would outweigh all of them as well. He was able to create students that were in his mold and great Torah leaders. In fact, Rabbi Akiva, uh, that we studied in the past, he was a student of two of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's students, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Hoshua. Uh, it's almost as if all the great personalities that we've discussed till now, we could actually go from Hillel to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai to the next generation of the leaders of Yavne, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Hoshua. Their students is Rabbi Akiva, his students are Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, and their students is Rabbi Judah the Prince, and thus the uh, six generations of Tanayim, of authors of the Mishnah. The Talmud gives a eulogy to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. It says that when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai died, 
there was no longer a splendor, a radiance of wisdom. He was the last one to have a radiance of wisdom. Now what that means is um, a little bit unclear. So Rashi tells us, I don't know what this refers to. What is it? I, which I think is a good lesson for us. It's a good lesson that even someone like Rashi, who I guarantee you could have concocted a reason if he wanted to, uh, that's a very instructive lesson for him to say, I don't know what it means. Because if he doesn't know what it means, certainly, well, we could say that we don't know something. The Talmud tells us a person should get accustomed to saying, I don't know. But I'm going to try to suggest a reason of what this means, the splendor, the countenance of wisdom. Perhaps we could suggest when the Talmud gives a eulogy of Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai by saying that his face was radiating with wisdom, what it shows that his Torah, his wisdom, it actually permeated into his body. The reason why we have this competing dual reality is we have a spiritual reality, and that's real, but not as real, so to speak, as our physical reality, is because our Torah is often relegated in our minds. And therefore, it's in our heads. It doesn't really, it's not really integrated into our bodies, so to speak. Rabbi Yochanan Betzakai, he was someone who the Torah enveloped him to such a degree that he actually exuded wisdom, so to speak. The Torah was emanating for, uh, from him because the Torah supplanted the previous reality, the reality that we all start off life with, the reality governed by our Yetzirah, the physical reality. So he too was like us. He also had a physical reality, but then the Torah became absorbed into him and it actually radiated out because there was nothing left within him that was an inhibitor to his Torah. And therefore, his face, so to speak, radiated his wisdom. Either way, his visionary leadership ensured that the Jewish people and the Torah will flourish in the aftermath of the destruction. The story of Yavne and the really the first 10 to 20 years of Yavne, really remarkable, the students of Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai and what they did, the various challenges that they had over there at the time, really interesting decisions and episodes uh, that happened, and we were God willing look at it next week. We're going to do a little bit of a, of a mashup of various uh, leaders of Yavne and their interactions and very surprising stories that happened in that place at that time.